Hey, everybody. Kip Etter, Powder and String Outfitters, your hometown shop, downtown Wellington, Kansas, right here today. I have Brian Strange with B Strange Customs uh, with us. He is our in-house um, custom engraver. I'm very, very uh, lucky and uh, blessed to have him. Um, I've also got with us sitting in uh, is Mike Hatfield. He's our um, in-house custom gunsmith. Um, these two individuals are, are fixtures in the shop. And um, they're a very uh, intricate part of, you know, kind of what sets our shop apart. From the heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home, one-stop shop for all things shooting sports and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. I just couldn't be any happier to be, um, you know, have them have you guys in the shop. You're, they're they're extremely talented, um, um, humble, but they they won't speak um, of the accolades that they have. But um, extremely talented both in their in their fields. Um, Brian, um, your your shop here it's it's in the it's in our shop, if you will. And um, if you would just a little bit here, just tell us just a little bit about what your, you know, be strange customs, what, what all you do and, and how you kind of fit into our shop, if you will. Well, honestly, we're, uh, it, by happenstance, I'm, I'm a bit and spur maker and I make buckles and Western jewelry, but, uh, I started teaching myself to engrave several years ago and, and I have a love for guns. So it just folded right into the gun thing and, and fits in pretty good here you know just so happens a lot of my clientele being cowboys and, and western style people they enjoy firearms as well so this just really ties in well for us yeah yeah and 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 again as i said mentioned before brian he's he's humble but brian is talented um beyond measure um his team him and you know the, the team that they have you guys are making spurs for for you, you, you corrected me the other day. I said, sending them all over the United States. You said all over the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've and, got multiple countries that we're in uh, as far as probably every state in the union as well. Yeah. And then with regards to, you know, you're, you're, you're making spurs and, and I can tell you that, you know, I grew up here, you know, here in the Midwest. Um, and, 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 and for a short period of time, I, you know, I went out out West to, to Phoenix and, and in that world out there, um, boy, I was a, a, you know, a redneck, if you will. And, and I would tell you, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know enough, um, about agriculture and farming and, and that kind of stuff. I've got family members that have horses and I was dumbfounded. Um, you know, kind of one of the things you don't know, you don't know at, at the level of craftsmanship that you guys put into, to your works, um, of, of everything. And, and with the spurs, you're also engraving them as well. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and you're making bits and you're making, Tell me all the different parts. I mean, I see them, but we make bits, buckles, headstall buckles, jewelry. Uh, if it's metal and it's western, we make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Mike, um, you, you know, you you came into the shop here pretty early. Well, actually, both of you kind of came on about the same time. You know, I I we're not even uh, two years into to having this shop open and and kind of to 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 give paint the whole picture. Um, you know, I had, I had this, um, idea, or I guess my wife and I had this idea, um, to, 
uh, you know, start a gun shop. And I was uh, actually selling something on Marketplace, and you walked in, and I knew of you. And uh, again, small world, we'd come to find out we our paths had crossed before, but we probably didn't know it. Um, but you know, you you would come in to buy something off a of Marketplace right, that I was selling right. out of the it was building. A cabinet. Yeah, and you're like, what is this? And you know, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be, you know, associated. And I, and I was like, well, I'd be tickled silly to have, you know, have an engraver. And never in my wildest dreams did I think, you know, that that would happen. I actually, I think I've told you before that, you know, I was brainstorming when we were, my wife and I decided to start this and I'd put your name down as, as, you know, God, in my wildest dreams, I'd love to have somebody that could do engraving. And then voila, here you are less than, you know, less than a month, but maybe even two weeks later, you're, you know, power of positive thinking. Here you are walking through the door telling me that you want to be a part of this and I'm <laughs> I'm tickled silly and at that time I didn't even know the extent and and the the, the how how big or you will or that, that your your business is and you know one of the first things that you told me was well, yeah that's all you know fine and dandy but we got to find somebody that does hot bluing because mm-hmm. you know again I you know I guess I always tell people, you know, you don't know what you don't know type thing. And, and right. you know, your world is one of those things. But I would also tell you, you know, I'm I'm a gun guy um, uh, and I'm, I'm an archery guy probably more than I'm a gun guy. But once you get into this world, you realize really quickly that there's no way that you're going to know everything. And so there's so much stuff that, that you don't know. And so along those lines, you said, you know, which makes complete and total sense. But once you scratch that, that gun, you know, engrave it, engraving, that's kind of the, that's your lingo scratching. Sure. sure. Um, then obviously you've got that bare piece of metal and then, you know, that's got to either be covered up. It's either needs to be stainless steel or you're gonna have to blue it again. Right. So again, um, it's, it's awesome how, how the big man works. Um, all of a sudden it wasn't even a matter of what, probably maybe another two or three weeks and, and random as random can be. Um, literally random. I have to tell it cause it's so random. And again, it's just a big believer in, in, in if you're doing the right thing and you know, the Lord will, will point, will point you in the right direction. But, um, it's, you know, here we are, we're talking, this is, uh, um, early 21 and we're not even open yet. So to say, and a bunch of boxes get delivered and from, from the, you know, UPS, FedEx, whatever. And one of them is delivered wrong. And, and lo and behold, there's a number on the outside of it. So it's the, the person that's receiving its phone numbers on there. So I call him, don't know the person comes over guys. A, he's a gun guy. And, and, um, you know, the shop's not even open yet. And, and he says, do you have a gunsmith? And again, things I'd written down, no, but I'd love <laughs> to have one or I'd love to, to find one, I guess not, not have one. I, I would dreamed of having one, right? but I, I would love to find one because already when I had started talking about opening the shop, that's the number one thing that we were getting, you know, Hey, you know, a gunsmith, are you going to have a gunsmith? And you know, in my wildest dreams. So all of a sudden this guy says, Hey, I know a guy just moved in, you know, into town, you know, he's, you know, got a, got a degree and, um, you know, he might be looking for a shop. And so I thought, yeah, here's my number. There ain't no way there, excuse me. There isn't any way that, that he's going to be interested in this. He walks down and Mike, you came in the shop yeah. and, well, you know, the, Mike the Hatfield. Day, I think, yeah. I think I think that was like on a Monday, and you were down like Wednesday or Thursday. Right. And the funny part is, is uh, the guy that you del- called up who had the wrong package. That was my niece's 
forget how that twist is. I think it's my niece's ex-husband's father. Right. And we'd had a barbecue there literally the Saturday prior. It's the first time I'd ever met the man. And we uh, started talking guns around the campfire. And uh, next thing I know, you know, he's handed me your number. I'm like, well, okay, give it a call. Yeah. I didn't expect to look for work. You know, I was just kind of feeling the area out. Hadn't even been in Kansas a week. Yeah. And your background, so you, you, you've got your degree from Trinidad Community College in gunsmithing. So tell, tell us tell a little bit about that. Well, let's see. Uh, Trinidad State Junior College is the oldest gunsmithing college in the country. It was started by Parker Ackley, who's a rather famous uh, gun builder back in the day, uh, for returning soldiers from World War II. Uh, developed an interest in firearms, and he started a program to teach them basic gunsmithing, machine, machining, stock making, the usual stuff. I think the college, if I remember right, has been around since 1953, and... Uh, has run continuously to the best of my knowledge until present day. I started in, I believe it was 2003 when I started the class there, uh, me and 16 other kids. And, uh, you know, a, a world of not a clue. I just, my security background, I'd done that before for 15 years. And when I got out of the security industry, started my focus and interest was mostly firearms by the end of that. And I went in there. I'd worked on guns. I'm sure I butchered more than I repaired. But, you know, just working on my own stuff, I was too broke to buy the fancy things I read about in the magazine. So decided to go take a shot at gunsmithing school, and, oh, God, here we are coming up on 20 years later. I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, and, and again, you, you know, the two two guys that are, you know, here, they're, they're definitely, like as I said before, they're fixtures in our in our, our, our shop here, in, intricate parts of it, uh, integral parts of it. It's it, in huge of what we have. And to be where we're at today in less than two years, I mean, I, it's just, well, actually, Mike, last night you and I were kind of having a talk because sometimes we have, to, we have to pinch ourselves, but then we also have to remind ourselves because we have, um, we have well, I think we're all kind of big, big dreamers, if you will. And we kind of got big ideas. Um, and we're looking at continuing to, to, to grow this thing. Right. I mean, here we are sitting in a podcast right. <laughs> and, yeah. right. and, you know, two years, but we really feel like we can, we can, we have something that we can offer to, you know, the listeners out there. Um, and, and we want to get this thing, you know, up and going because, you know, we, 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 we're not that, we're not that uh, shop that you're going to walk in. That's going to be, you know, high pressure. We're not that shop that's going to come in and, and try to, you know, to, 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 to just push numbers, I guess, if you will, we want to make sure that you're, you understand what you're, you're getting that you're, we want to be, um, you know, attractive to the first time shooters all the way up to your very experienced shooters. And that's one of the things that, you know, with our staff and, and, um, especially with you two individuals, um, we're offering what we believe to be something that's, you know, extremely unique. And I think that maybe the two of you can obviously speak more, um, educatedly with regards to your own particular um, industry, if you will, because they're even though they're 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 very entwined, they're very much at the same time very unique. Um, so we've kind of the three of us have talked about it, and and some of the other staff and 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 other customers, if you will, that we know to to be very knowledgeable in this industry. We we believe we're what we're offering and, and currently and what we've what we're going to continue to to grow upon and offer is going to be one of the you know, we're a very limited number of shops in the entire U.S. that can do this, 
Brian, do you want to kind of talk about your side of that? Well, you know, the thing about gun engraving is is it's it's a lot like the food you eat or clothing or everybody's got different flavors. Everybody's got different tastes. Um, I consider myself an extremely middle-of-the-road engraver. As I said, there. he's humble. <laughs> well, you know, I have eyes. You know, there are engravers that, that are just phenomenal at what they do. And then there's engravers that are just getting started. And I kind of consider myself right in the middle of that. I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but I'm a lot further away from where I started. Well, and that's very healthy, and I think that's one of the reasons why we all fit the way that we do is, right. is that you know you're humble, but you know I don't know what the magnification is on your on your microscope when you do the engraving. And it's really cool. We have it set up um, whenever he's engraving. Um, you know, a firearm in the shop or, um, you know, knives that we, you know, sell in the shop or whatever. Um, we've got it set up to where we actually have that playing up on the, on the showroom floor. So um, what's the magnification on that? To be real honest, I wouldn't want to lie to you. I think it's like 20. Okay. So so for our listeners out there, kind of what, what the reason I bring that up is because what he sees is underneath the magnifying glass. And right, yeah. while there may be slight imperfections, even with a set of bifocals and a, and a, and a, um, a microscope is what you look right, through a magnifying right. glass, excuse me, um, to clear that up a magnifying glass. You, you, it's, it's perfect. He's very talented at what he does, but, but well, go I ahead. And we can, well, we kind of, I, I kind of got off track there, but we're talking about this industry and well, the, what, the, the cool thing what about we this offer here is, is I've always, you know, I've always had the desire to engrave guns and, and I have engraved several of my own throughout the years. And, never could take in guns from the public because of the FFL situation. I don't have an FFL, nor was I interested in getting an FFL. Um, but so it kind of limited what I could do firearms wise. Then I come wandering into your store to buy a cabinet and, uh, suddenly I'm engraving under an FFL and now I can consider myself a gun engraver. Uh, you know, I, if it's metal, I try to scratch on it. There are, are certain types And again, of- scratch is the term. He uses <laughs> right. that. Scratch is, is, is the term or the lingo. Uh, when I heard that the first time, I was like, scratch? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it when I hear him. To him, scratching is a good thing. To a gunsmith, scratch, a scratch is bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those deals where, you know, you spoke about the magnification. If I make a slip or a mistake, I'm at the point in my career and my abilities where most people are never going to be able to pick it out. Now, a, a good engraver could because he'd know what to look for. But the average gun owner or even some collectors wouldn't be able to pick out a mistake because, honestly, there's not an engraver out there that doesn't make a slip here and there. So, you know, and, and my play on words with scratching was I've just used it forever and and it always gets a little bit of a reaction out of people. So I just continue to use it. But, uh, you know, this industry is, is like I said, there are so many different types of engravers and so many different levels of engravers in this industry that, uh, it's, it's hard to, to even pick a category. I mean, you've got your, your firearms engravers that were just, I mean, they're the masters at what they do. And right. then you've got, like I said, you've got the guys that probably shouldn't even be engraving guns at, mm-hmm. the, mo- at the moment, but everybody and for the record, somewhere. I've never heard Brian say even, you know, off the record or even under his breath, 
anything negative about anybody else. You know, he, he kind of touched base. He's just an extremely humble, good guy. Um, just a good all around person, but you, you must keep that criticism to yourself. Well, my wife here is near full. <laughs> you know, uh, we, right. but my wife, my wife I and I, tell her we appreciate it. We, we look at work in our industry. Uh, we are both, we're both, uh, business partners basically. Yeah. And, and she's in the, in the, in the beginning stages of starting a, a leather shop. Yeah. Which we're, let's talk about that just for a second. Okay. Since you brought it up. Um, again, just growth beyond our wildest dreams. <laughs> um, your f- talent in in this man's family is an understatement. Um, your f- and a family business is an understatement. Your um, your your operation, if you will, um, you've got what uh, four full time employees. So yourself, I've got your wife. Yeah, there's four of us working full time. I've got two part time, four part time, uh, and all but two of those are related to me. Right, and and they're all talented. In, in their own right, if you will. Um, but um, all of a sudden, I said, we shouldn't say all of a sudden, um, but like anything in this, since, since we started this thing, if you're doing the right, th- I believe, genuinely believe, we've all talked about this, if you're doing the right things, things come easy. And so um, all of a sudden, the other day, not the other day, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, Brian's like, hey, what do you think um, about leather and holsters and I said, wow, man, you're talking, I mean, again, um, something I had written down on a sheet of paper that, you know, hey, in the future, I'd like to have. Um, But all of a sudden, Brian's like, you know, I I think we can expand into that. So go ahead and touch base a little bit about that. Well, I have my youngest daughter to blame. Uh, Dally is, she is a master with a sewing machine. And she's learned it from my wife. And she voiced a desire to get into leather work. So her and my wife have started taking some classes. And uh, we needed some extra office space anyway. So we there's a building right next to the gun store that we decided to rent. And plenty of room for a show floor as well as a leather shop. So we just went ahead and started buying some leather equipment. And, and, and I've done some leather work in the past. Yeah, and a natural fit because, uh, you know, we've, we've talked before on – on a previous podcast about um, holsters. And, you know, one of the things that you're up against when you go to add a, a, a light or a laser is is how much it limits you with a holster oh, yeah. and that your everyday carry is the one that you're going to carry. So um, something that we hear, uh, I wouldn't say it's every day, but it's fairly, you know, fairly regular is, is that, you know, where do I get a holster for that? Well, you know, some of the, some, 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 a lot of weapon setups, if you will, you got to have a custom made. And so natural fit, here we are, you know, right. And you know, we're super excited that you're doing that and couldn't be happier to have you, you know, literally right. You're, you're, you're the majority of your operation is right here in our shop, but Mm -hmm. the rest that's not is literally right next door. And so, so I'm excited for that letter. I want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so just kind of, again, to touch base on that, you know, you guys are talking about, um, you know, not just holsters, but scabbards, um, we plan on doing belts, rifle, sw- rifle slings, I, scabbards, cases, belts, right? We'll, okay. we'll yeah. probably do some belts. Uh, you know, we're just right now we're just dipping our toe in it. And but so, I would say again, going back common, common theme, this, this, this man is humble. His family's humble, great family. Um, 
if they're going to put their name on it, it's going to be quality and it's going to be good. Mike, I think you can kind of, and you, you've known him now we're going on, yeah, going absolutely. on two years. So and I'm so would excited you, would you disagree? No, absolutely not. You know, I, he's always had a bit of an imposter syndrome kind of thing. Never thinks he's good enough. And then I look at his work and I'm like, <laughs> I've got an eye for gun engraving. I look at it and I see, wow. And he's like, Oh yeah, it's pretty decent. And I'm like, okay, that's absolutely not, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. You can't see it with a naked eye. Yeah. It's good I mean, art. I'm not going to sit here and tell our listeners, you know, make us out to be something that we're not because we're no. going to stay yeah. humble and right. say right. there definitely are other engravers out there that, that are a notch above you. But sure. But you're, I mean, I would have no problem handing you a family heirloom or, or you know, creating a family heirloom, which we've done. Right. I mean, we've we've done that oh, yeah. already um, okay. several times. Me and times. Brian have already talked about uh, the Damascus barrel gun that I want to build and him doing the scratching on the receiver. Right. So, yeah. so, um, yeah. I mean, again, just just everything's everything is just you know, if you, it's it's going together great. Sometimes it's we wish it was quicker, but then there's other times we have to remind ourselves, and that's kind of what I was talking about with Mike last night. Is is that we have to remind ourselves? All right, let's focus on where we're at, even though we need to do other things. Um, and, and what we've got to this point where we're at. So, um, Mike, one of the main reasons that, that we wanted to have this as one of our f- first, you know, podcast, if you will, is so that way that we could talk about um, how engraving our shop, the services that we offer, and, and, and where we kind of set ourselves apart, not just with, you know, the, the customer service and the services that we provide, um, as well as knowledge and stuff on the sales floor, but also, um, you know, hot bluing. Tell us a little bit about hot bluing. I mean, my my knowledge of hot bluing before you came on was, um, I mean, you don't even know what you don't know. I knew what it was. Um, I didn't realize all the different styles and types right and, as it developed. Yeah, over go the ahead ages, and tell yeah. us tell us a little bit about that. And I mean, maybe even you can start with you know. When did it start or how did it, you know? Well, originally, I would say sometime roughly 17th century or so, um, most firearms were either what they called browned or they were left bright, which was just polished steel. Um, most militaries used a, a polished musket of some type where the soldier was responsible for maintaining his weapon, and that just meant scratching the rust off of it pretty much on a daily basis. Um and the civilian side, uh, or what I guess would be the early commercial side, is gunsmiths would brown the guns. And that's literally just rust. Um, the, the thought there, I guess the thought process was that rusted guns don't rust more. So if you can rust it in a pretty way, um, then the ugly, scaly stuff you see on your exhaust pipe or your truck you know, won't grow on it. And so what they would do is they would put usually some kind of a salt-based uh, solution uh, on a gun, put it in a humid environment, and just let it sit, sometimes overnight, sometimes a week. I mean, if you were a gunsmith in Georgia in the summertime, you could probably brown a gun uh, in a week. If you were in Arizona, it you know it might take a week for the first coat of rust to develop. And what they'd do is they'd put the solution on, let it rust overnight or however long. When it got a nice, healthy coat of rust on it, they would literally scratch it off and that left behind a slight brown stain that would be all splotchy and mottled, and they would just keep adding the solution and letting it rust and scratching it off. And eventually, you know, it left a nice brown, even stain over the entire firearm, and that was the finish. We call that patina. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it's amazing to me how the difference between usable rusty items or items that are rusty and used, they are almost protected in a way. In my industry with the bits and spurs, we build from steel. And so these items will rust and they will turn brown and they will patina, but they won't seize up. They won't, they'll still move freely. They'll, they're right, almost yep. just protected. So that kind of correlates right into what you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't know if it's a scientific term or not, but um, <laughs> I always called it active rust versus, you know, dormant or, or, right. or expended rust, right. you know, the staining that it leaves behind. Um, Eventually, though, bluing became a process, and, and originally that was, they called it a cold bluing process, but that has nothing to do with uh, today's cold bluing solutions like you see on the, on the right. firearm shelf, you know. Um, the original cold blue process where they did basically the same rusting, um, and they would put it uh, by, instead of putting salt water on it, they would put a, uh, I believe it was a copper sulfate solution, and then they would just let that put in a damp box and it would stain it a, a darker black blue. Um, basically it was a slow rust process, right. you know, what they call what nowadays we call it rust blowing. Mm-hmm. And it's where you, you put a solution on, you get a, a nice brown patina or, or a blue patina, depending on the chemicals. And then you would card that off. And then a lot of times now we boil them in water and that stops the rusting process and then allows you to pull it back out. You give it another coat of solution, and eventually it just darkens up until you see, you know, like the classic rust blue on a traditional old Winchester or right. one of those. Nowadays, modern manufacturers, they use uh, an alkali process. It's what they call hot salts dipping. And that's mostly, if I remember right, it's potassium nitrate, sodium nitrate or sulfate, and a few other tasty chemicals. Um, and it mostly it was designed, it came about... I would say about the 1930s, 1940s, manufacturers like Winchester and Colt, who had been doing other variations like charcoal blowing or color case hardening, um, they found out that the, uh, I believe it was Dewlight, if I remember right, was the first company uh, to make a commercial hot salts chemical. And it's just a lot faster. Um, It's not as durable, I don't think, as the traditional rust blues because you don't rub the finish into the steel. it's important to remember that bluing really adds nothing to the steel. It's not a paint. It's not a coating. You know, it's actually a conversion of the surface layers. A lot of people fail to realize that it's steel, steel underneath the bluing, and right. so it's going to react. Although the the protectant covering may it be aids a little, in it, right? Yeah, it's that rust doesn't rust thing. Modern <laughs> but, bluing is just a, a and fast, obviously pretty rust. It, yeah, along those same lines. And Brian, kind of what you're talking, still got to put oil. Still got to yeah. clean it. it yeah. yeah, and everybody. I mean, I say everybody. It just slows down the natural process is yeah, all it does. Right. And it's, you know, bluing is probably one of the less durable finishes you can put on a gun. I mean, right. today's modern epoxy coatings and, you know, Cerakotes and all those things, they're incredibly tough. But Americans especially are very traditional. We we like our blued steel. We like our, you know, wooden hand, iron. hand rubbed. Wooden iron, finish. yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, 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 and along those lines... You know, firearm restoration. I mean, you, uh, well, when we first got started in here, there, you know, we had a customer that, that brought in a, a 18, what, something? Uh, yeah, 1860s, 1870s uh, Damascus 10 gauge shotgun. I'm still, still finishing it up. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. but I mean, I mean, to, to tell you when, when this customer brought this in, okay, so, so you have to picture this. Like, there were some 
some parts, the majority of which didn't really resemble parts, in a Ziploc bag, and there was absolutely no wood on this this oh, yeah. firearm. It resemb- the only thing it resembled a firearm, if you'd have seen the bag of parts, they were just literally springs and pieces of metal. Um, and the only thing that resembled a firearm was that it was you know a double barrel shotgun. But that being said, it was... Um, it was you could t- you could with a naked eye you could tell that the the barrel was bent um, or barrels were bent and there and was separated dense. Oh, yeah. I mean this thing you, if I I would have bet the farm that that was scrap metal and this thing was like I said eighteen sixties whatever yeah eighteen sixties Belgian proof marks on it were so eighteen sixties yeah, it still had still had a little bit of engraving but I mean this thing literally looked like it had been pulled out of the the barn. You know, the, and it was put in there. If it was made in 1861, it was put in the barn in 1862 and had been there ever since. And, oh, yeah. you know, here, you know, again, you don't know what you don't know. And here these two are like, yeah, we can make that thing work again. And Mike's, you know, putting it together. So when we say full firearm restoration with 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 these two individuals and their skills, you know, we're able to offer that. And so going back to, to the bluing and everything like that is, you know, when you're you know, even when you're working on a gun, especially, you know, anything that already had bluing in order for that work, a lot of times to be finished or look right, it's got to be reblued or it's got a, a part that went on there. Um, you know, I know we've put, we've had some customers that have come in and, you know, had us, um, build like right now we're doing a, a, a Remington 700 action for, for a customer and, you know, putting it together, there was a few parts that we had to, blue to make it match and 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 if you would kind of kind of tell us about all the different types of bluing which again well no idea here in the shop i can do uh charcoal bluing which was a traditional winchester style uh about 1924 is when they got away from that um we do color case hardening on a limited basis right now until we get our furnace downstairs Mm -hmm. um that's an again. That's another very traditional and it's more of a quench color kind of thing. Um, we do the traditional modern hot bluing. Uh, I can do fume rust bluing, what they called the cold process rust bluing, slow rust bluing, and then the like the Belgium blue, which is a slightly modernized version of that slow process, um, and, and then uh, traditional browning. Mm. Carbona bluing, which was a Smith and Wesson term, uh, basically it was a charcoal style of blue, and again that's a heat that's a heat treat uh, color, and then I think Smith and Wesson added sperm whale oil or something to their charcoal pack, or they used bone charcoal and sperm whale oil in the in the process, mm-hmm. and that's literally that's a heat color, so you would like when you bake steel or you know. And so when you do this, I mean you kind of talk, talked about. Um the case harding and currently we're not offering that in the shop, but it is something that's on our radar, if you will. Um, but if you're re if you're rebuilding a, you know, a, a, a restoring, not rebuilding, I guess would restoring to be a better term. You've got to match that to what's already on there. Yeah. And, so- and along those lines, I mean, I, again, not knowing, you know, until you're, you know, all of a sudden you're a part of this, that this is a, this is an art. I mean, this isn't something that, you know, I think that one of the things I want to make sure that I let, you know, the, the or listeners out there know is, is that, you know, I would have been that guy that would have been like, all right, just, you know, if he's a, if he's a gunsmith, then he can, you know, he can hot blue. Well, 
No, not ever. I mean, most gunsmiths, any gunsmith who went to one of the accredited colleges is going and to And when I say least, gunsmith, yeah, is I'm at least quoting, learn. quoting a gunsmith, you know? Right, yeah. Um, any, anybody who went through one of the accredited college certificate or degree programs is going to learn how to blue. But that doesn't mean that they'll, they'll blue when they take off in their shops or get to, you know, their new employment. A lot of gunsmith services don't offer the hot bluing. Um, it's, it's chemical heavy. It's fairly expensive. Uh, it's hot. It's nasty work. Um, and, you know, some of those chemicals are, are pretty caustic and you're dealing with, you know, 300 degrees right about. Well, I mean, I can and, speak to that is, is yeah. you know, my, my background prior to, to this is, you know, the restaurant and, and, um, you know, right. into that hard stuff. Yeah. and, you know, I stainless steel and I can tell you that we, you know, I bought some stainless steel shelves to put in our bluing room that, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, that wasn't even the, the all nice eight months, brown, yeah. eight months ago, and this stainless steel is is you know, well, it's is like rusted. I told you, it's a stainless. He told me, yeah, yeah, stainless isn't stain proof; it's just stains less. You yeah. know, I mean? so it's a very caustic, and but but um, you know, we've we've seen the work that's come out, and it's just you know, a, r- raving fans, if you will. I mean, we, I'm not going to say that we haven't had customers that you know didn't you know you worked on a gun and didn't bring it back. That'd be a lie, but you fixed it and it was right. And yeah. And I mean, we haven't for to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think we really had any customers that, you know, were, you know, upset to the point where we couldn't resolve it or fix it. You know, again, we want to be, no. we want to be as honest as we can on here and tell everybody. Oh yeah. There's, we can there's is. always the one that's going to come back. And over the years I've, you know, the numbers have gone down by usually average about 3% returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's always then, the one that got the best deal as well. Yeah, it's the one. It's, it's the one you, who begged you to put him to the front of the pack, and, and then you know. So obviously, you, you bump him ahead of somebody else just to keep the customer happy. You know, and, and we try to, but like I say, the guns are always going to come back. Sure. There's always something. Most of the time, you know, it, it's either a, a refinement issue on a repair or a modification, or sometimes it's just educating the customer on the accessories he bought or you know right. the service he requested. And it's like going back to the blowing thing. Uh, people come in and they want, you know, they've got old rusty Betsy, you know, 3030 that bounced around in grandpa's truck. And they're like, hey, I want you to refinish this. All right, well, then I have to stop and take a breath. And we're like, are we going to just refinish it? You know, I can strip the rust off of it, polish the pits out, you know, and we can drop it in the hot tank and just re-blew it. Um, but a lot of times I was like, okay, or do you want to refinish or a restore? And there's a lot of difference between the two. Um, just about any of the big... Which also equates to price. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Um, a lot more effort goes into the restoration. Sometimes it's bench time where I get into my library of books and I have to try and find a, an example. Or pick up the phone and call you know, somebody yeah. that you know in the oh, industry. Oh, yeah, I've got a phone index that's 20 years long now. And, and, and one yeah. thing, you know, our goal on the, you know, with, with releasing these podcasts and getting on these podcasts, our goal is to educate and to try to, you know, um, get as much information that we believe to be true and believe to be right uh, to the best of our knowledge. And again, we could be mistaken. And, you know, if that does potentially happen, we want to, you know, just apologize up front. But one of the things that, as you were saying, restore restoration, one of the things I want to kind of touch base on is, is that, um, a lot of, especially historical firearms, you're, almost always better to leave it 
in the condition that it's in. Is that correct? I mean, like, it if depends on a, what your what your goal is. So, well, again, and, and yeah, you're talking if, about gold, but, yeah, if it's but from a value family, standpoint, yeah, from a collector's value standpoint, most of the time, uh, if I, you have, I think what my yeah. not to interrupt you, but I think what my goal with that question was is to make sure that we don't have a customer that may listen to this podcast and then go out not maybe not to our shop but to another shop and then that shop is all about well you know i'm providing a service i'm a business i just want to make sure that i'm you know making that money right, yeah rather and then they take something that had historical value unbeknownst to them and had it restored and then and the collector value the collector goes down 50 percent. there you go and that's right off the top I've found, though, a lot of times, well, probably 99.9% of the time, sentimental value always trumps collector value. It does. Yep. And what I what I try and talk to a lot of customers in is like with Grandpa's old Betsy, you know, the old, right. like that Winchester, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, 1894 from 1915. When he brought that one in, it was like, is it a family heirloom? Well, yeah, it is. Okay, well, let's not do a full restoration. Right. Because, you know, when you... I can steam out the dents in the woodstock. I can repair splits and cracks, you know, uh, make the woodstock look new, apply a finish. I can polish out all the rust and pits on the barrel. You can re-engrave the lettering. Um, but when you do that, you're erasing a lot of the family history. Yeah. So it's like, you know, always got to ask the customer, it's like, all right, if this was grandpa's gun and it has some historical value, I says, let's not do a full restoration. Let's, let's get it back up and running. Mm-hmm and address any major mechanical issues. Let's stabilize it so it doesn't deteriorate any further. And you can take it out and enjoy it without actually removing all of the history. Like, you know, that's where Grandpa clubbed the rabbit to death, you know. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, right, tripped I've over got, the fence. I've got a, my grandpa's first shotgun uh, hanging in my house that I did a very generic restoration on it. I am not a gunsmith. I will say that out front. But uh, when my grandpa was a kid, they were they – were, uh, farmers and they were harvesting corn in a wagon horse-drawn wagon and uh, the shotgun was there for snakes and things of that sort you know and it fell off the wagon wagon rolled over it broke the stock well my great-grandfather drove two nails through the stock and wrapped it in copper wire yep so when that gun was given to me I removed all the it, – it had been him hanging in my grandpa's shop for years, and he burned wood for heat. And so, you know, it had it had buildup all over it. So I kind of cleaned it off and, and got it functioning. And I t- pulled all that copper wire off, cleaned the wire, and wrapped it all back on exactly where it was just because that was part of that gun's story. Right, and that yeah. gun will never be more than a 20 or $30 gun in any – retrospect of the, of the conversation but uh it, it's got a lot of family value and that wire wrapped around it although it doesn't bring it back to any kind of a collector's value it's got a story behind it and each one of the dents and dings and all these guns that you work on have stories and i think sometimes it's a shame to to try to get rid of those stories especially if it's a, a family gun yeah and and that was a hard lesson for me to learn you know i started out it's like when I did the canoe trip, um, went down to it and uh, was working at uh, museums along the river. You said there. you did a canoe trip, uh, you know, just for listeners. You <laughs> crazy story. You don't. You're not a good swimmer. No, I don't swim. No, right. I don't and swim. you got a harebrained idea to. Oh yeah, that was great. To I, what? Tell, tell our okay, listeners. Okay, so 
what was it, 2015? Well, just, just, yeah. You were going to do what? What was the canoe trip? Uh, canoe down the Mississippi River. All right. Stopped so, it. So there you go. Yeah. Continue on with it. You did the canoe trip. So that's, you, you don't have to tell any more. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to that story, but. All right. Um, so yeah, anyways, when I was working for the museums down there, I walk in as a gunsmith, you know, and I'm there to help the historical societies preserve all their guns in their collection. And that was a big learning thing. They're like, stop, don't fix that. You can't fix that. You know, you'll destroy the history. It came sure. in with that broken part, sure. you know, that kind of thing. So a lot of what I ended up doing there was just taking them apart, you know, uh, Museums usually use some form of a wax preservative on their guns. So take them apart. If they needed some attention, if they've been you know, neglected in a collection basement or, or they got them in very rough condition, right. help them disassemble the guns. Uh, you know, a lot of those historical societies, they're all run by volunteers, great people. A lot of them didn't know how to take a gun apart. So literally from the outside only, you get a coat of wax and they put it in the display or, or it goes back in storage. So when I was in there, I was like, I see a broken gun. Boy, instinct kicks in. I'm all about, hey, I can fix that. We can get that thing back up and running. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of those directors are like, whoa, put the brakes on there, buddy. You know? So that was a hard lesson to learn. But it's something I like to share with the customers, too. Like I said, because right. when they come in, a lot of times they're just like, you know, the blowing's worn off. It's got some pets. Let's go ahead and do a refinish or let's go ahead and restore. Yeah. yeah. So so coming back full circle to, to kind of what we what we'd start on is, is that um, we talked about, you know, right now you probably have – I don't know, a dozen full firearm restorations. Um, oh, way, way, way more than that. Okay, yeah. so you got more yeah. than that. But, but the the one particular gun that that we started with, if you will, that gun came in as I kind of mentioned in 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 parts, and not all the parts were there. No, no. and didn't even know what was missing because I'd never seen that action before. Yeah, yeah and 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 when it's done, um, Damascus barrel. You could potentially, the customer chose not to on this one to make it functional, but you could potentially make that thing, not potentially, you could absolutely make that thing yeah. um, fully functional. Yep. So here's a gun that probably hasn't, he, this customer had a picture with a f longtime great, family. Great grandfather yeah, something. or something, yeah. The gun has dents in the barrels, you know, they're separated, they're bent, and with a lot of obviously knowledge, experience, time, we're going to be able to put this thing back to what it was before. Um, pretty much, you know, identical to what it was before. All intense. I mean, we probably, we, yeah, um, we could. So there, there were some things that the customer yeah. chose differently, but we could put it back with Brian's expertise in graving, oh, your yeah, expertise absolutely. in gunsmithing, and the, the facility and the, and, the, and the equipment that we have. We could put it back to what it was and um, make it functional. I mean, it would. It was a 10, 10 gauge, and so in order to make the Damascus barrel functional safely, right? Yeah, um, and we should probably talk about right. That yeah, I mean, bit, I, yeah. I from from personal experience before before I was born, um, my dad had an uh, had a very unfortunate um, accident with a Damascus barrel shotgun, and he doesn't have part of his left hand. Yeah, uh, this was back in the you know the the sixties, but they're not a safe uh, weapon to shoot. Um, and, well. and Right, yeah. We well, we'll get there. I guess maybe I'm more based upon my dad. You know, and this was before I was born, but based upon my dad's experience, they're not safe for me to shoot, but they're definitely not safe to shoot with the new modern additional no, absolutely not um, powders. Yeah. So, in order to make this one, this this particular restoration, in order to make it functional, you would have had to have lined the barrels 
Um, and then that would have made you say, I think you had mentioned to me, it would go from a 10 gauge to a 12 or a 20 gauge. Or right. 18. So there's a couple of things you can do there. So with, uh, with the Massey Sparrows especially, the, the lawyers and just about every gunsmith will tell any customer that Damascus barrels, I don't care how good they look on the inside, uh, how thick the barrel wall is or any of that, they're just not safe to shoot. And a lot of that stems from people stuffing modern shells in antique guns, and they just don't contain the pressures. Um, and then you get accidents like your dad had. You know, um, personally, you know, I, I know people who shoot Damascus barrel guns, and they, you know, they load down for them traditional black powder loads. But still, there's there's risk. You're you're stuffing an explosive cartridge in a 150 year old barrel. You know. Um, and you just don't know. Maybe, maybe explain a little bit for those that don't know, or if, if maybe I can. I don't care what Damascus is. Oh, okay. So traditionally, yeah, both of you could definitely. You're, yeah. you're experts in your own field, um, Brian. You're expert with with it just from a metal standpoint, and oh, yeah. you know, with your shop, you guys. I mean, that's what you, you're. You're basically blacksmiths, I think. I mean. I mean, you're down there yeah. with an anvil, your, your well, team. And that's how my thing stemmed. I, I was a farrier for 22 years. And for those of you that don't know what a farrier is, I, I shod horses, put horseshoes on the feet of horses for 22 years. I worked in the fire daily uh, at the anvil, shaping shoes and building shoes and things of that sort. So, so yeah, this whole thing started. this whole thing started with an anvil and a hammer and some fire for right. me. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah. And then, Mike, with regard to Damascus, you want to kind of maybe explain to our listeners out there what, you know, what that telltale, you know, for those of us right. that know what Damascus is, you look at it, oh, that's Damascus. But you know. right, yeah. So Damascus is basically different types of metal, usually rods or wire, that were. Uh, so you'd have something like a low carbon steel and a nickel steel, um, and they would wrap them around a mandrel, and that was traditionally called a twist. Um, and it, they forge weld it literally, get guys, blacksmiths, heat the steel red hot over the fire, get it to the welding temperature, uh, dump some flux on it, and then literally pound it into a tube, uh, literally pound it into a tube until it starts to weld itself into a, in one solid piece. Right. Um, and so Damascus, you can usually spot it because it has the, the different colors and the rotation and everything in there. And then the true Damascus, they can blend it. And the old blacksmiths back in the day can twist it and, and wrap it around a mandrel. And, and the finished product yeah. is just—I mean, there works. I mean, yeah. in my opinion, it's just—it just doesn't get any prettier for you know for a knife or you know even right. for for a, a gun. I mean, it's just man, well, it's, it's just pretty. It's the, very pretty. My opinion. But you know, when you start wrapping and, and mixing different types of metals together, they're all going to have different properties, different mm -hmm. strengths, tensile strengths, and things of that sort. And you know, like Mike was saying back in the the 1800s and such, the rounds they were using weren't the same as what we're using now. So the pressures, yeah, especially on aged metal, the pressures that you're going to put in through there with a modern with a modern round would be too much because there's potentially flaws within the wraps and, and small forge right. welds. Oh, not the potentially, there's always, almost guaranteed. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I yeah. would think yeah. in a barrel, you're not going to find one without a flaw. Right. And, and so, you know, I think that's where people are going to have their issues with it. It's beautiful. And, and I just don't, I think that's probably why you don't see modern guns built that way. You know, it's my understanding, right. and Mike, maybe you can expand on that. Um, I think I read somewhere that there's actually a company that might be oh there is yep i'm excited a, yeah so there's a swedish company called damasteel 
Um, and they make pretty much all modern manufacturers of guns these days use some form of a powdered metal um, when they're casting their parts for your, for your guns. And so this damage steel company has figured out a way to mix the different powders. So, you know, basically powdered low carbon seals, you know, a 10, uh, a 1018 or, or right. one of those, you know, and, uh, powdered stainless steels, probably a 406 or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, or nickel steel is another option. And so they figured out a way to blend these powders in such a way that you have a Damascus, a true Damascus steel without the welding process. It's huh. done almost at the atomic level as I'm understanding right. it. And I apparently just a year or two ago, I may be a little bit behind here, but they finally got the patent for a uh, Damascus steel that is gun, gun proof rated. So it's a high pressure steel oh, wow. and they're calling it gun steel. Um, outrageously expensive oh, importing imagine. it from S Sweden, I think it was. Um, I did find a supplier here uh, in the U.S. that can order me the solid bars in large enough diameters and, and long enough lengths. So, like me and yeah, you, yeah, we kind of talking about manufacturing potential. You yeah. know, again, you know, uh, I've talked a couple times here today about you know a list of stuff, and that's something that you know we're already um, you know we've got customers that'll come in with ideas and you know parts and stuff, and you know helping them you know put their put their ideas that they have you know together if you will um but we're definitely um heavily considering adding you know manufacturing to oh, our, yeah. to our to our portfolio if you will um you know moving forward um there, I, I guess i just would say i feel like it's again it's one of them things it's just kind of a natural fit and sure i next year probably i mean here we are sure i'll, I'll, I'll yeah <laughs> i mean and i say next year um you know I'm talking 2023, so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm super excited, you know, about yeah. that for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I really want to make sure that we, we, we kind of put out there is just how we work together and, and how the two different trades and fields that you guys, the expertise that you two bring to the table w how they mingle and, and what that allows us to do. Um, you know, I know we've kind of elaborated on it, Mike, that we've got a mill, we've got a lathe, we've got all this machinery that, you know, that you can do. Brian, you know, from an engraving standpoint, we just, um, we were, um, I guess we were, I, not, not guess, we were um, approached by the um, friends of the NRA um, right. for uh, Kansas, and they commissioned us to take a 1911 and oh, yeah. make yeah. it their... Um, 2023 uh, handgun of the year and we, we re finished this that about a month ago for him um you want to kind of brian talk about what you did with it and then mike you can kind of talk about what you did with it and this this is a this is going to be a handgun that's my understanding the friends in our are going to put it every event or in kansas this year and and give it away well they were they were among my my favorite gun customers so far because when we sat down to visit about what needed to be done with the gun, we were given a, a, a general budget and then I was given free reign and that can be dangerous, but it's my favorite <laughs> way to do things. Uh, you're always, and I, I, I probably speak for any artist or any craftsman in the world. You give that person free reign. You're going to get more than what you paid for. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's when you try to handcuff somebody and I want this cut here and that cut there that you're going to get exactly what you paid for. But, you know, my style is probably a little different than a lot of other engravers. I tend to draw on the gun. I, I, I'll take some, some candle wax with my thumb and I'll, and when you get in a bind, I come in and help you. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, it's you're it, constantly in there drawing I, right. for me, and I, I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I got to come in and you know belly him out all the time. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Be you got to look out for that stick figure. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> I'll, I'll take you know just some candle wax and wipe it on the slide, and I'll draw with a pencil what I want to engrave. And all I draw for the most part is the backbone, and we do we do a lot of scrolls. So, the 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 viney part that twirls in a scroll is called the the backbone and then i freehand when i'm cutting all of the all of the leaves and structure and that's the fun part of gun engraving the not so fun part is the background removal and that's when you go in and actually remove the negative space around what you're engraving to make it appear to be 3d and and that takes forever and you know it's to correlate back to to bluing I was going to say that, in my opinion, bluing's probably eighty percent prep work and twenty percent bluing. Oh yeah, I'd say the numbers are heavier on the polishing side, right? Because uh, a blue job is only as good as the prep work. And you know, and gun engraving is the same thing. That what people see—the scrolls, the leaves, the flowers, and things of that sort—that's the pretty part, but that's the fast part. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the easiest part to come up with. Right. It's all of the the prepping the gun before you engrave it, and the the removing of the background. If you're going to do background removal, there are other styles that don't do background removal. But for guns, I I don't think you should even. I, I personally think every every gun should have background removal gun style engraving. Right. Um, yeah, it's the same with gun stock carving too. Right. You know, you basically you draw out what you want. Um, and I mean, there's incise carving, you know, where you sure. cut in and, um, but mostly you're drawing out what you want and then you leave that there. Right. I mean, you don't actually have to do anything with it once you've drawn it out. It's, you have to you get everything so away easy. from it. Yeah. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, with wood, it is a lot easier, mm. it, but it doesn't grow back when you cut it off. Right. But, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can use super glue if I slip kind of thing. Right. You know, <laughs> right. you know I, I'm using, for those of you that don't know, I, I don't use a hammer and chisel. There are hammer and chisel engravers out there and, and I tip my hat to them, but I'm far too lazy to do that. Uh, I prefer air powered. Uh, there are, you know, the three main types or four main types of engraving out there that are available right now are hammer and chisel which you use obviously hammer and, ch- hammer and chisel push engraving which is arm power you you have a, a sharpened tool we already you're not strong enough to do no that. i'm not and and I'm you won't see right, right, i don't yeah. think you'll ever see a gun engraver unless it's a brass receiver i don't think you'll ever see a gun engraver attempting push engraving. <laughs> and, and our viewers can't see brian's a big dude he's, <laughs> yeah he's he's a big dude and then I use pneumatic, which is basically a small air hammer. It's like it's it fits in the palm of your hand. And so basically you, you've got an air hammer with a chisel at the end of it that removes metal. And then obviously the newer shops have been introduced into laser engraving, which it has its place. But, you know, I, I was just visiting with a customer earlier and we were talking about he, he wanted – a quoted price and, and it's not cheap to have hand engraving done. And I did explain to him that, you know, maybe he had been introduced to laser engraving, which is far less expensive. And 
but it's not going to do anything for the value of your gun. Uh, laser engraving is just going to add a little decoration for you, and it's not going to do anything for the, the overall collector's value of the gun. To me, it's just... No, I, mean, I think, I'm, you know, from, from my knowledge and standpoint, it's going to detract from it. Well, in, in certain... Potentially. I think, yeah, because with anything, any type of art, you have to have somebody wanting I'm glad you that said that art. word, art. Well, because it, it, it's something that I've, I've I've been rolling around in my head listening to you you two talk. You're both artists. I mean, your sure. skill you have a skill. Sure, you have a a, a trade. Um, you know, but it's a it's an art. We're talking art here. Both the bluing, the firearm restoration, the, the the engraving, the whole thing. It's an art. It's. I think it is. anybody I mean, there's, that there's definitely science behind it. Sure, you know. It, I think any craftsman, you know, from woodworking yeah. to anything, they that you start as you start doing a job, whether it's digging a ditch or whatever, you come up with ways that make it your signature I don't way. Know of, anybody of would doing say it. digging a ditch is an art, but hey, you know, I, I could do it. I could yeah. do it. I could dig a ditch, and it could be pretty. All right. Well, I, I would tell you if if somebody could do, <laughs> I could watch a, a pretty. Yeah, yeah, I would watch. But if somebody could dig a pretty ditch, it would be it would be somebody in the strange family. Well, I think that anybody, any craftsman that starts off to do a craft, eventually they're going to challenge themselves to just to defeat boredom. Uh, you're going to challenge right, yeah. yourself yeah. to do yeah. something more intricate with what you're doing. Uh, whether, like I said, whether it's digging a ditch, you're going to find a way to do it. The, the entertain a different way to do it whether it's you know digging it faster or, or whatever and you know even the laser engravers now there's a lot of bad publicity in the gun engraving world about laser engravers but here is the thing about them somebody has to design that work somebody yeah. has to know how to do it and that's an art within itself now i will say that there are a lot of traditional engravers designing work for the laser engravers to use, mm-hmm. which, you know, and, so and, what? And, and I would, I think, again, I'm speaking um, blindly, but I would think the the overwhelming vast majority with a very, very small exception are going, that's going to be disclosed. This oh, yeah. is a, oh yeah, this is a, you know, a, well, a laser copy of, or something that was and laid here's out by or, or, or collectors, by. gun engravers, if you're if you're a gun collector that knows engraving, or if you're a gun engraver yourself, a lot of times you can look at a piece of engraving and know exactly who designed it. And so, yeah, even seen, if they, I've, I've witnessed that with Brian, you know, I'll bring something up, and you know, I'll see something on you know on the internet, and I'll show him, and he'll without before I can even tell you who did it, he tells well, me that was so and so's. Yeah, I'm like, right, oh, what yeah. the heck. Well, you know, it's one of those things. Anybody that says that they don't, we're we're in the information age. I mean, yeah. you know, we have every we person's film, work. That's, uh, you know, edit. I mean, uh, recording a, a podcast, right? I mean, you know, I if I am lacking, it's, matter of fact, I had a fellow engraver uh, text me the other day, and he asked me to send him some pictures of some pocket knives that I had finished because he had a knife in front of him that he just couldn't wrap his hand, head around how he was going to do it, and he wanted to look at some of my work for inspiration. Now, that was humbling. That was pretty cool. But we all do it. You oh, know, yeah, Anytime absolutely. I've got a gun that I'm engraving, now, we don't copy. We don't outright copy because, A, you, if, you can't, if yeah. it's a good enough engraver, you, can't, you can mimic their work, but you can't copy their work. And so you know, their layout, you could copy that. But even then, you're not going to nail how they did it. So it's going to be different. 
So every engraver that I know, especially nowadays, looks at other engravers' work and gets inspiration. I tell you, I was in Springfield a year or so ago, and I was walking through uh, the, the Bass Pro Shop up there. And they've got a firearms museum in the Bass Pro oh, yeah. Shop. Love it. And to look at some of these guns that were engraved in the 1600s with hammer and chisel, gold inlay, better engraving that I could dream of doing, and I'm working under a microscope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, these guys were just true craftsmen and artists. And it's you talk about humbling. That's humbling. Yeah. To, to see what they did without much magnification. I'm sure they had some magnification, but they didn't have fluorescent lights. They didn't have LED lights. They didn't have air power behind them. They didn't have, they didn't even have the type of steels well, that we use to, to create our chisel, tools. Chisel, yeah. I mean, well, no, you, you, I've, I've heard you say before, um, you know, when we all have customers that'll bring in a gun, they want something engraved on it or whatever, then you, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a sheet out there or whatever there's information sure. out there you kind of know based upon the manufacturer you know what's the hardness of that and you know what you you know it, anything i guess could potentially be engraved but realistically engraved sure and, and done so you know how hard that is and that's one of the things that you know when we're we're looking for you know a project if you will here in the shop um that's one of the things that we kind of identify is is you know hey what's what is going to be from you know from a engraving standpoint how hard is it well and it's just like the oh. guy that came in this morning yeah uh, he had a ruger sr uh 10 rest yeah ruger sr 1911 okay and uh i guess it's sr 19 or whatever it's yes. called anyway i had engraved one already and mm -hmm. so i showed yeah. him pictures of we've it got, and, we've got pictures of it on our right. um, on our facebook page and, and, and he said oh that's great and he said well what am i looking at money wise well I knew exactly how long that one had taken me. And so I was able to tell him, you know, within a two or three hour window, this is what it would, what it would take. And, you know, uh, with other guns, like you said, they, to say they're not engravable, anything's doable. I mean, you can figure out a way to do it, but some things are not engravable within a budget of a customer. You know, if you say, okay, a normal 1911, I can engrave the slide in 25 hours, but this Glock is so hard, it's going to take me 57 hours to do. There's not very many customers that are going to put that kind of money into a Glock. So typically, I just say I, I can't engrave them. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that steeper angles on my gravers and, and different faces and things of that sort, I could probably get the job done, and it probably wouldn't be as nice as my normal engraving but i could get the job done but we would be double to triple the time yeah and and i, I think to finish my my question i, I kind of left it open is is that a lot of your time is spent sharpening sharpening oh, yeah. tools yeah yeah even even on soft materials with the exception of sterling and things of that sort even on soft guns and, and knives i i'm probably 40 to 60 ratio mm -hmm. probably 40 percent of my time that I'm engraving, I'm sharpening tools mm -hmm. because they just, they chip and, and just a minute chip, it will skid across the surface and you'll put a big old scratch. And so you have to be razor sharp the whole time on some of these materials, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, it, this is an art. I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're super proud. We're super happy. Um, I couldn't be more ecstatic that, you know, we've got these two individuals, you know, in the shop, they're both extremely talented. They both have 
you know, years of experience in their, in their industries. Where do I send my check? Um, I'll get you that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get you the jar on the way out. Yeah, I'll get you the address when we're done here. I don't want everybody to be, uh, you know, sending sending it in, if you will. But now, I mean, and and you know, I kind of had talked about, you know, several times. Humble, Brian. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot, but you know, with regards to your team and the stuff that you guys build and everything like that, um, there's a really popular show out right now, and you've built a lot of of spurs for. You want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that for yeah? I, cue you I, up, I'm sure that I'm sure that most of your listeners have heard of Yellowstone. Uh, we built our first pair of spurs for Yellowstone about three years ago, and it was one of the stuntmen. Uh, matter of fact, it was Jimmy's stuntman. If you're familiar with the show, uh, he ordered them personally. Well, now I've probably got in the neighborhood of six to ten pair floating between the four different shows that are under the Yellowstone brand. Uh, I, I have been lucky enough to, there's a, a very large um, tax store or Western trade store in Texas that carries my product. All of our tux, Texas listeners. Teskies, yeah. Uh, Teskies and Weatherford carries, carries our spurs and they deal directly with the studios now with Yellowstone and they have been selling my spurs to Yellowstone. So I really honestly don't know how many pair, mm-hmm. but I've built, I built a pair for Tim McGraw yeah. uh, and his wife. I remember those. those yeah. Gorgeous. yeah. And I, we've, you know, being in the shop, I mean, you know, words don't put out what, what these two individuals can do, but speaking just with regards to Brian, I mean, these things are starting with a, piece of flat metal <laughs> i mean they're flat metal cool. you're, and then now you're using like cold rolled right no we use 1018 we do use some cold rolled with our okay. round rod and things of that sort but so, most of my steel is hot rolled 1018 okay, yeah so yeah, so, so that, these are just i mean to our listeners out this is just black it's just scaled a black looking, yeah. metal that if you left it outside and for just a you know a couple of days sure. it'd start rusting and in a very short period of time him brian and his team i mean they're they're putting out some art and and with regards to that kind of where the the connection comes is is that those spurs you know you're adding it they're very there's no two pairs of the same no and and you're adding art to sure. it you're adding scroll you're adding you know you've made them with a lot of them i've seen with you know revolvers as the mm-hmm. the what is the correct terminology for that shank. the shank thank mm-hmm. you um the shank is a revolver and and you're engraving on that. Oh, yeah. And so there's the connection, you know, if you will, from, you know, you say you, you, you self-taught, but you started scratching using your terminology. And, and now you've, I mean, you've done, I mean, I have no problem. And I don't think that there's anybody that's seen his work would have any problem. And I mean, we're sitting here with Mike and Mike, you've been, you know, in heavily in the gun industry, working on touching, you know, firearms. I mean, not, Tell us, how, how, what's the most expensive firearm you've touched and worked on? Uh, Purdy's a London shotgun, 1900 What somewhere. would you say the value of it was? I think that one was appraised at like 80000 So you're touching an $80,000 gun. Would you have any problem having, you know, Brian scratching? Scratching on... No, I mean, absolutely not. In fact, it's 
like that damage deal we were talking about with our manufacturing. If we get there, I was already talking. Just don't Ryan. tell me what it is when you give it to me. To <laughs> right, me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, we'll keep that part out. So that way, you know, you're not. not I want take, to, I want to tell you limit it's the mine. I'll just be like, here, you know. Yeah, we pulled yeah. this out of the parts bin. Let's do some practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hand hand kept the bill. You know, we're gonna sell <laughs> this one in the store. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fact is, you were gonna do. We were talking about the English scroll work. You know. Yeah. Lot tighter patterns and whatnot. I'm not an expert in English scroll work, that is for certain, but uh, I think I could figure if it out. If there's somebody I'll out there that can do it, I I mean, I've seen your yeah. work now, you know, I guess I would say intimately um, for, you know, we're going on two years. Yeah. And man, I just, if, if, if Brian, you know, is going to put his name on it, Mike's going to put their name on it, you know, powder and string, we're going to put our brand on it. Um, we're striving to 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 set ourselves apart. We don't want to be your shop that's, you know, we're not all about, you know, just just selling a product or products or or you know to our customers. We want to be that that hometown shop that has the old creaky floors in the downtown building that um you know, you get the personalized service. And and that's not just to say just, you know, with walk-in customers, but you know, we're fielding calls, you know, all over the country. Um, oh yeah, I've got guns in from 11 states now, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we're, we're, you know, with te technology again, here we are sitting, you know, recording a podcast, you know, we can, we can do a lot of stuff here in this little shop and we're continuing to, um, strive to make our mark, if you will, you know, scratch our mark. There we go. Scratch our mark on I like it. it. And I can't tell the, you know, you two again, how much I appreciate, you know, the, the, the relationship that we have here, what we've put together, what we've built, um, what we have going. And, and I think that, you know, the sky's the limit, so to say, um, you know, what, with what we can, you know, put together, put out and what we're going to be able to, to do here and, and, uh, the support that we've had up to this point with regards to our customers, man, hats off. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. And, wouldn't be here without them. Yeah, no. Yeah. And we appreciate it. Get patience. Um, you know, art. We're what what we're doing here is a lot of it is is skill and art, and and you can't rush that. And so, um, you know, there is a wait. We're we're working. There's got some stuff in in the works with to try to to try to, you know, responsibly um, tackle that, if you will. Um, we're gonna head out to shot show. You know, here this next month, and you know, we're looking forward to. To continuing to grow the ride's been great to this point and we couldn't be any happier um again mike hatfield pattern string gunsmith uh, pattern string outfitters or gunsmith in-house glad that you're here thanks for being on the podcast yeah, love it. brian yeah. strange brian you're, you've got um social media you're on facebook yeah we're on facebook our business page is be strange products uh you can see we try to keep it updated, but sometimes, especially this time of year with Christmas and everything, it's hard to to take time and, and be on social media. But we're also under uh, Be Strange Products on Instagram as well, yeah. and we're in, we're in the process of building a website, so mm -hmm. that's coming. Yeah, perfect. Well, again, expanding into you know holsters, leather, and mm -hmm. there's even been mentioned a Kydex. So um, you know we're 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 doing everything we can to set ourselves apart, and we appreciate all the. Uh, listeners out there and we also appreciate you know the customers and, and all that so powder and string outfitters downtown wellington kansas your hometown shop thanks for listening